May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Each year on the first Sunday of Lent, the lectionary has us read of Jesus' 40 days sojourn in the wilderness. In the years that the lectionary has us reading from Matthew or Luke, there's a good bit of detail offered. 13 verses in Luke, 11 in Matthew. In these years, though, in which we read from Mark, there are but two verses. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. That's it. No mention of the nature of these temptations or the back-and-forth dialogue between Jesus and the tempter, the Satan. But this is the way it is with the gospel according to Mark, as described by the alternative rock music icon Nick Cave. In his introduction to this gospel, Mark wrote with such breathless insistence, such compulsive narrative intensity, that one is reminded of a child recounting some amazing tale, piling fact upon fact as if the whole world depended on it, which, of course, to Mark, it did. Straight away and immediately link one event to another, everyone runs, shouts, is amazed, inflaming Christ's mission with a dazzling urgency. Forty days in the wilderness tempted by Satan, with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. And then, just like that, the episode is over. Jesus returns to Galilee to find that John the Baptist has been thrown into prison, and then he launches into his ministry. And yet, writes Cave in his article, Christ's 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness also say something about his aloneness. For when Christ takes takes on his ministry around Galilee and in Jerusalem, he enters a wilderness of the soul, where all the outpourings of his brilliant, jewel-like imagination are in turns misunderstood, rebuffed, ignored, mocked and vilified and would eventually be the death of him. There's a leanness to the figure of Jesus as portrayed by Mark. No one quite gets him, or at least not until the moment of his death, when a Roman centurion of all people will finally proclaim Truly, this man was God's son. Up until then, in Mark's gospel, it's all missed cues and misplaced hope. But that's to get well ahead of ourselves. For now, I want you to notice that in Mark's telling, after Jesus' baptism, quote, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. In Matthew and Luke, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit, but here he's driven out. It's that urgency again. 
coming up out of the waters of baptism, he must now enter into the dry and arid spaces of the wilderness and face down the reality of his calling. He has to do it. He's driven to it. In a way that echoes the experience of the liberated Hebrew slaves coming out through the waters of the Red Sea and into the Sinai Desert, a very particular piece of work needs to be done. And it's work that can only be done in the desert. At the moment of his baptism, the gospel tells us, Jesus heard a voice from heaven speak to him, words of profound assurance. You are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. But it was through the experience of the desert that Jesus wrestled with what that might really mean. Out beyond the edge of his society, beyond all safety and security, in a place, Mark notes, inhabited by wild beasts, and in which the hot sun and lack of water can kill a careless traveler in a day. It's out there that Jesus is called to wrestle with what it means for, his, for this God, for his Father, to call him the Beloved. Which is where that single phrase, tempted by Satan, really comes to the fore. I want you to set aside any image of the horned and tailed character that we've inherited from the medieval world. And I want you to forget all the ways in which Hollywood has variously pictured its devils. Those images might unnerve or frighten or even intrigue us. But finally, they're too thin to do justice to that which Jesus wrestles with in the desert. Pushed to the very edge of survival, he needs to keep recalling himself to his foundational identity as the beloved of God, the beloved Son, and to keep pressing forward into the life and ministry to which he's being called. Against this, the Satan, which in Hebrew means literally the accuser or the adversary, offers the seductive alternative of an easier way. You don't have to do that. Let me give you options here. But because this seductive, easier way would subvert the very person Jesus was and is, because it is a way that would leave the world trapped in its patterns of death, this Satan is a far more destructive thing than the horned devil of popular imagination. Now, alongside of this text from Mark, we also heard a brief reading from the first epistle of Peter, a reading that offers a sweeping view of what it means for us that Jesus resisted those temptations of that easier way. And our reading included references to the spirits in prison and to angels, authorities, and powers which through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension have been made subject to him. That's the language in First Peter. They are subject to him. There's a claim being made here, a claim that on account of Christ, 
God has spoken a binding world over the life of the whole world. And the angels, authorities, and powers of their own cannot speak anything like that binding word. That word is Christ, and without him it's not uttered. Not that we live in a world in which other words are not spoken, other claims still made, other temptations of an easier way. As N.T. Wright asks, which principalities and powers have tricked us, us, into compromise and collusion? Where do we allow that which is other than the God of Jesus Christ, other systems, other temptations, other powers and structures to determine who we are, both individually but also corporately, as a society, as a human people? If you're tempted to imagine, on the one hand, that the Satan is merely some evil character looking to trip up or torment individual people, or on the other hand, that this language of the powers, of the principalities, is all the stuff of some long bygone world, consider this. It was one of the most educated, ordered, and technologically sophisticated nations in modern history that embraced the convoluted version of reality that was the Third Reich. It was everyday, church-going, law-abiding German citizens who ran the gas ovens of Auschwitz, in which they murdered people who had formerly been their neighbors. Claims other than the one made by God in Christ held sway. Death-dealing words spoken over that self-evidently civilized society. And a hell on earth was unleashed for a decade, decade and a half. It is to such a vision of humanity, such a killing vision of humanity, that Jesus uttered his definitive no when he faced his tempter in the wilderness. And maybe such a powerful word of renunciation can only be uttered after having spent serious time alone in the desert. Just as Israel needed 40 years in the Sinai desert to get its Egyptian experiences out of its collective system, perhaps the very human Jesus needed those 40 days to be cleared of any illusion that he could do this work as anything other than the Son, the Beloved. For us, too, sometimes the place we most need to be, the place where we will grow and learn and be seasoned, be matured, be grown, is in the wilderness. It's part of what we're challenged to consider during this symbolic 40-day season, desert season, called Lent. To be sure, sometimes our own personal desert and wilderness experiences don't neatly line up with a 40-day liturgical season. In fact, sometimes our personal wildernesses can seem like they just won't ever end. Has God led me into this, people ask? 
depression, prolonged grief, unresolvable grief, unrelenting periods of deep doubt or despair. God led me here? No. I don't believe God drives us into those kinds of places, nor does God keep us there as if to teach us some hidden lesson. But sometimes people do find themselves in long, long, dry deserts. Which might lead us finally to consider that other phrase from Mark's brief account. And the angels waited on him. They were not to keep Jesus from being tested by Satan, says N.T. Wright. Just as finally the angels would not keep him from Calvary itself. The angels, and that word means literally the messengers, were there to assure him that his beloved father was watching over him, was there with him, was loving him, acting through him, pouring out his spirit all the time in and through him. What did Jesus actually see of those messengers, of those angels who waited upon him in that wilderness? Well, typically, Mark won't give us so much as a hint. But I suspect it was not so much a case of seeing something grand and glorious as it was of Jesus being given an experience of being accompanied and not alone. An inner knowledge and a deep trust that there was indeed a way to survive into the next day and the next and the next. In a wilderness season, that kind of trust and that sense of not-aloneness are perhaps the very things, the gifts, in fact, to which we all need to learn to be most open. A season in the wilderness. May it, in its own way, be a blessing, a seasoning. And may the angels wait upon you in the darkest and the hardest days. Amen.